Our next case is in race CG. When we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is Katie Dickinson Schultz. I'm from the Appellate Public Defender's Office, and I'm representing CG on appeal. An involuntary commitment is the most severe option for treating someone with serious mental illness in our state under Chapter 122C. And it should be treated that way because we're talking about locking someone up out of their home, away from their friends and family, uh, not because they did something wrong, not because they committed a crime, but because they have a mental illness, something beyond their control. That's why, over 40 years ago, the General Assembly clarified what it, excuse me, that's why the General Assembly clarified the IVC statutes over 40 years ago to, to ensure that only those individuals facing a reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation in the near future could be committed. So just having a mental illness isn't enough. Just facing current self-care issues isn't enough. The threat, of the threat of harm has to be real, consequential, and debilitative. But that's not what happened to CG. The trial court involuntarily committed CG without making any findings about his risk of serious physical debilitation. And the Court of Appeals affirmed. It said even though the district court didn't make findings, no problem, we'll do it for the court. And things like not brushing your teeth three times a day, instead only brushing them twice, and sometimes facing food insecurity, those things were good enough to create the nexus to establish that risk of serious physical debilitation. The problem is that what was good enough for the Court of Appeals and what was good enough for the District of Court is not good enough under the statute. And it's not good enough under our public policy to keep people in their homes, in their communities, and not put them in institutions. CG was committed because both the Court of Appeals and the trial court conflated mental illness with dangerous, removing any requirement to show that future harm. CG deserves better, and the Court of Appeals' opinion must be reversed. So under 122C-268J, in order to commit somebody, the trial court shall find by clear, cogent, and convincing evidence that a person is both mentally ill and dangerous to himself. And dangerous to self is explicitly spelled out under the statute, and it has two prongs to it. It means, one, that the person can't take care of all of his self-care needs. So this may be nourishment needs, safety, shelter needs. But the, but the state has to show and the trial court has to find also that the person is facing a reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation in the near future if they aren't committed. So while current needs can be what creates the nexus to show that future harm, the court has to make some findings connecting the two. Um, and that makes sense because not every self-care issue is gonna result in this serious physical debilitation. Um, there is no definition of serious physical debilitation in our statutes, and the Court of Appeals has never explicitly defined it. Um, and I actually went and looked at, there are several other states that have the same exact requirement for commitment. Um, states like New Jersey, Hawaii, Pennsylvania, and none of those states have an explicit definition either. But one of the courts in that state made an interesting point. They said, look, this concept is hard to define, 
and this concept is hard to meet. But that's by design, because involuntary commitment should be something hard to find. It should be the exception, not the rule. So when we're talking about serious physical debilitation, though, we're talking about somebody who's in an incredibly weakened state to the extent that they're at risk of crisis or they're at the risk of some sort of permanent injury, some sort of permanent loss or damage. The individual has to be grossly neglecting this self-care in order to be able to establish that risk of, of future harm. Um, and I think not having a hard and fast definition makes sense because how somebody's mental illness and their symptoms are gonna impact and create this future risk of harm is gonna be on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so while there isn't a hard and fast definition, there's definitely standards. And what I can say for certain is that what the trial court found here was good enough, did not even come close to meet the statutory definition of that future risk of harm. Um, I think one thing that's important to note is the statute requires that it be serious physical debilitation, not mental debilitation. So a reemergence of somebody's mental health symptoms, uh, the fact that somebody might be mentally ill in the future, that's not good enough to commit somebody under the statute. And that makes sense because we don't want to lock somebody up because they're mentally ill and probably going to be mentally ill in the future. That's not what the statute requires. So this statute was amended in 1979. So previous to 1979, you could commit somebody just for having current self-care issues. But when the statute was amended, the General Assembly explicitly put this future harm requirement in there. So turning to what the Court of Appeals did, the first thing the Court of Appeals did is something I agree with. And it, it, it reaffirmed the, the mandatory fact-finding responsibility of the trial court. The trial court has to find, make findings, establishing both the ultimate findings of um, mental illness and dangerous to self, but the trial court also has to make some findings based on the evidence of how it got to that determination. Um, and we agree with that. The court then looked at the evidence and said, CG testified that his ACT team wanted him to brush his teeth three times a day instead of twice, and that his ACT team wanted him to eat more. And the Court of Appeals said this evidence was good enough to establish the first prong of the definition, that he was having dental and nourishment self-care issues that he wasn't meeting. But that, after that is where the Court of Appeals opinion really falls apart. Because the court, in two sentences of analysis, looked at these dental and nourishment needs and said that those needs, in addition to the fact that the YAC team couldn't take care of all of CG's needs, or what created the nexus for that future harm. I don't even think the Court of Appeals said the word serious physical debilitation in their analysis. And that was it. That was all the Court of Appeals discussed. But needing to brush your teeth once more time a day, one more time a day, sometimes not getting three meals a day facing food insecurity, that is not likely to result in serious physical debilitation. Neither of these concerns are going to result in the type of physical consequences necessary to establish that second prong of the statute. I mean, as, as far as the dental concerns, I mean, the only risk I really can see CG at risk for is getting an extra cavity. And as far as the nourishment concerns, 
I mean, there was nothing def definite in the findings or in the evidence about what, what was really going on with these concerns. We don't have any testimony about the physical effects of maybe CG not getting three meals a day every single day. No one testified that CG had lost weight. We don't know if CG had gained weight. We don't know if CG just needed to eat different food. The trial court didn't elicit any of that testimony and no one testified about that. Um, for the most part, if you look at CG's testimony, he testified about all the ways he was able to meet all his nourishment needs. He says on this day, I get a check, and this day I go to the store, and I get meals from these places. So he was, he was actually pretty successful at getting all of his food needs taken care of. There's just a huge gap between needing to brush your teeth one more time a day and needing help sometimes getting three meals a day and serious physical debilitation and neither the trial court nor the court of appeals filled that gap in. And as far as the ACT team not being able to help him in the community, you know, this is another thing. It's kind of like the nourishment need. We don't know what the ACT team thought or what was going on there. And that's because the trial court, again, didn't elicit any testimony. No one from the ACT team showed up to testify. No documentation that noted the ACT team's concern was introduced uh, properly at the hearing. So we have no idea with what was going on with the ACT team and what they were seeing on the ground. Um, you know, it's possible, we do know that the ACT team brought CG to the emergency room, but it may be because he just needed immediate stabilization. He was no longer at risk of that future harm and he could have been released back to his home and back to his community. And unfortunately, this type of future harm analysis or lack thereof is what we're getting a lot of from the district courts in the Court of Appeals. We've got prosecutors not prosecuting the case. We've got trial judges who aren't familiar with somebody's case trying to make the case for the state. And then we've got the Court of Appeals affirming orders that are wholly lacking in this future harm analysis. Any minor self-care issue is being elevated into this risk of serious physical debilitation. And that is not what the statute requires. We're not fulfilling our obligation to keep our citizens who have serious mental illness in the community. And unfortunately, as the amicus brief notes, IVC has become the standard treatment instead of the exception. And that's not how it should be. You should only be involuntarily committing somebody if there's no other option if more community-based treatment isn't available, or even if outpatient treatment wouldn't work. And CG's case highlights this problem. Two sentences about future harm that rest entirely on not brushing your teeth three times a day and nonspecific food issues. So after the Court of Appeals addressed this, this future harm, um, it, it, it went into a discussion of a prima facie inference. And I'm not quite sure if the Court of Appeals thought that this prima facie inference allowed a court to bypass the future harm requirement, but the placement of the discussion was certainly curious in the Court of Appeals' opinion. So citing the evidence of CG's mental illness and the fact that CG had been experiencing symptoms like hallucinations and, and seeing dots and angels, the court concluded that that ev evidence established the prima facie inference that he couldn't take care of himself. Um, 
And this prima facie inference comes from the statutory definition of dangerous to self. It's the last sentence. And the statute says that if a person is so grossly irrational, or if a person is completely unable to control his actions, or if they have severely impaired insight, then you can presume that the person can't take care of all of his needs. First of all, the interesting part is the district court didn't find this inference. That was just the Court of Appeals doing the district court's job for it, I guess. And second, CG didn't come close to this level of uh, severely uh, impaired insight or being so grossly irrational. If you look at his testimony, you know, the trial judge asked him questions. He gave specific responses that were, you know, answering the question. He could recall details. He gave specifics. So this inference isn't, doesn't apply to somebody in CG's um, a place. But even if it did, you still have to find the future harm. Um, you can't just say, well, the person can't take care of all self-care needs. Therefore, he should be involuntarily committed. Again, there has to be something linking that inability to take care of those needs and some findings show that that's gonna result in probable serious physical debilitation. And we just don't have that here. I think very briefly, I wanted to address a couple of the state's arguments in its brief. But before I do that, I think, I think it's important to note that throughout the brief, sometimes the state conflates what the trial court's findings were with what the evidence was. And if the findings weren't there, the state points to the evidence and says, you see that evidence? That's good enough. That's what the trial court could have found. Therefore, an involuntary commitment was Well, it, it, to, to ask you about something that's a little bit related to where you're yes. headed, uh, is it your contention that there is no evidence from which this uh, substantial likelihood of, of harm could be found? Or are you just saying that the findings that are contained in the order don't permit such an inference? Both. So I would say in, in the trial court's order with what the trial court found, there was nothing indicating serious physical debilitation. But even if you look back behind the findings and look at what the evidence was, you know, Dr. Schiff, the only person to testify was Dr. Schiff. Dr. Schiff didn't say anything about any physical effects of what was going on with CG. And the trial court didn't ask any questions about that. The only you know, physical concerns that even came up at the hearing was from CG himself. So in this case, not only were the findings insufficient. Of course, the trial court's not obligated to give, to, to credit the testimony of any particular witness, including the respondent in these cases. Sure. But if, if the trial court was really concerned that CG's dental and nourishment needs weren't being met, and that is, that's what the trial court order said, then there has to be some sort of question, since the trial court was the one making the case for whoever the real party in interest was. In this well, I was trying not to rehash the <laughs> so. I know, I know, we're going full circle. Right. But yes, but the trial court needs to ask some sort of question. If, if we are going to commit CG, there has to be something in the evidence that says, okay, these dental, dental concerns, yes, they're there, and they're gonna lead to this serious physical debilitation, likely lead to the serious physical debilitation because whatever. But just saying there are these minor self-care issues or a nourishment concern that we're not even 
it's so speculative, we don't know what was physically going on with CG, you can't just leave that open. There has to be something in the order if we're going to lock somebody up against their will. So again, I would say it's both. So one of the things that the state says in its brief is that um, the findings were good enough. There are good enough findings in this order to justify the commitment. And this starts on page 31 of the state's brief. And one of the, the state points to basically two pieces of, not pieces of evidence, but two findings to say CG should have been committed, there's no problem here. And the first thing the state points to is the trial court's findings that CG's symptoms were gonna persist and he wasn't complying with medication. And we see this a lot in commitment cases, it's what I call the, but he was really mentally ill finding. But, but just having symptoms and your symptoms continuing, that is not necessarily gonna result in serious physical debilitation. You still have to show that future harm. There are plenty of people living in our communities with serious mental illness who are having symptoms who are not at risk for serious physical debilitation. And you have a right to be mentally ill and be symptomatic and still live in your home. There's nothing wrong with that. We just can't assume that because somebody's having symptoms that they necessarily qualify for involuntary commitment. And as far as this medication noncompliance, the state points to a couple court of appeals cases, um, specifically Zolikoffer, Enri Medlin, and Enri BS. And in those cases, what the state cites them for is this idea that if you're not taking your medication, you can't take care of your needs, therefore you can be involuntarily committed. And the problem with those cases in particular is that they rely mainly on this pre-1979 case, State v. Lee, which looked at the old statute, which said you can involuntarily commit somebody just <coughs> for not taking care of all your current issues. But the problem is that that statute's obsolete now. Now we have a new statute that says it's not just about not taking care of all your current needs, you have to show this future risk of harm. Um, the only definite thing we know about somebody not taking their medication is that their symptoms might not get better. But that isn't clear, convincing, and cogent evidence that the person is likely to suffer serious physical debilitation in the near future. The second findings are the evidence, it's, it's sort of both in their brief, that, are, that the state argued was good enough was this idea that CG was like to, likely to repeat self-endangering conduct. So in the statute, you know, previous episodes of dangerousness can be used to establish future dangerousness. Um, the state claimed that the trial court found that CG had gotten into fights, that he was instigating people to beat him up, he was wandering the street, and there weren't any findings about that in the trial court's order. And all the trial court said was that CG had been assaulted with no further detail, and that sometimes CG couldn't perceive other people's dangerousness. But what's interesting about the prior assault is we know from Dr. Schiff that that prior assault happened when CG was on the inpatient unit. So we're gonna lock CG up to put him at more risk of harm. Um, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and not perceiving other people's dangerousness, again, that doesn't necessarily mean you're at risk for serious physical debilitation. You know, again, 
if the trial court wanted to elicit more information about CG's previous episodes, she could have done so, but she didn't. There was no, nothing that the trial court elicited, nor any findings she made to establish that. Well, what, what, what about the, the testimony that the uh, hospital witness said, but there's been some aggression and aggressive behavior before, and he's put himself in such situations that would place him in danger and could place him in danger again. Yes. So how does, I mean, that, that to me perhaps has some future orientation. That it, it's, it's future adjacent. I don't think it's good enough. Because again, I, just, and, and why not? just being aggressive when you're locked up on an inpatient unit, I don't think you can necessarily say that person's going to be at risk for serious physical debilitation. We need some sort of specifics. You know, the idea that you have to show this, this future harm is specific. It can't just so, be... So, so it's not specific that would place him in danger? That's not specific enough. No, okay. because that seems to be based on an impression instead of the idea of what is it? What is he doing that's going to put him in danger? Because I'm not, I, I, it sounds so... So your concern is not that such evidence inherently is insufficient, but that given the way that it's couched in the testimony of this witness, it's not sufficient, I mean, your word was specific, so I'll go back to that, not sufficiently specific uh, a descriptor of what might happen to him, what would be a sufficient descriptor then? It, I mean, just make up something. Like make up a hypothetical, yeah. uh, specifically about the aggressiveness or something yeah. else? Uh, the, 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 uh, he's put himself in situations that would place him in danger and could place him in danger again. My, understanding of your argument is that's not specific enough. Can you give me some idea of what might be specific enough if you could just hypothesize something? Ooh, okay. Well, um, maybe if there was evidence that he was running up to people um, screaming r racial slurs at somebody and threatening to, like, hit them or something. And so the people would, somebody else would retaliate. But just saying that he's a little bit aggressive on the inpatient unit and he is, you know, he sometimes finds himself in danger. I think there has to be something more explicit than that. And again, I don't think, you know, if he is the victim of assaults, then I don't think locking CG up is the right response to that. Maybe we should be looking at, at locking up the people who are assaulting him. Um, but simply put, none of the findings that the state cited in the brief were sufficient to find this future risk of harm. Um, and I forgot to reserve my time for rebuttal. So I think unless there are further questions, I'm gonna save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Council. We'll hear from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is South Moore, and I represent the state of North Carolina. North Carolina seeks to assist those needing mental health treatment in ways that respect individual dignity and rights. Consistent with this goal, the state's policy 
is to encourage voluntary admissions to mental health treatment facilities. But sometimes an individual's mental illness is so severe that he is incapable of making treatment decisions for himself. In those situations, an individual may be involuntarily committed to a mental health treatment facility if a district court finds by clear, cogent, and convincing evidence that he has a mental illness and without treatment poses a danger to himself or others. Here, CG concedes that he has a mental illness, specifically schizoaffective disorder. CG also concedes that the district court's finding that he met the first prong of the dangerousness to self definition, that he was unable without assistance or supervision to exercise self-control in some facets of his life or satisfy some of his personal needs. Thus, the only issue before this court is whether the district court's recorded facts support the second prong of the dangerousness to self-definition. That is, whether there was a reasonable probability that without treatment, CG would suffer serious physical debilitation. You're not, you're not contending that the, that the trial court didn't have an obligation to make those findings. Your argument is that the trial court's findings suffice to make that showing? Absolutely, Your Honor. I think there are five findings. So the only real issue in your view that we've got here is whether these findings support a determination based on that final prong of the definition of dangerous to yourself. Yes, Your Honor. I believe that respondents said that they were also challenging whether the uh, evidence in the record supported those findings. Um, we, of course, believe that the evidence in the record also supports those findings. Well, that, that, that goes not to whether the order is sufficient, but what remedy ought to be provided if we concluded it wasn't, correct? In other words, if they're finding, if we don't, we've got a deficient set of findings, but there's evidence from which a correct set of findings could be made, that would call for a remand rather than for a uh, uh, outright reversal? That, that's correct, Your Honor. Um, I'd like to turn to the district court's recorded facts. Um, as I said, I think there are five that support its finding that CG faced a reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation. The district court's recorded facts reveal that CG's mental health had so thoroughly deteriorated that CG could not be safely treated in the outpatient context, even with a highly advanced outpatient care team. The district court's recorded facts further reveal that CG's hallucination. Where, where is that in order? Your Honor, the specific finding. I mean, let's, let's talk about the actual language from the order rather than. Of, of course, Your Honor. Something else. So that finding is the finding that CG's assertive community care team initially had him committed as they were unable to see to his needs because of his decompensation. Your Honor, that is a very significant finding for three reasons. Uh, first, uh, at page 21 of CG's brief, he acknowledges that this brief represents a, quote, finding as to the likelihood of CG suffering serious physical debilitation in the near future. Now, CG, of course, says that the finding shouldn't count because it's too vague, but in the medical community, and to those familiar with mental health treatment, that finding is not vague. And that gets to the second and third. Sorry, that finding is what? Not vague. Okay. Um, 
the second and third reasons uh, why it's so important. Um, second, a finding that CG was decompensating is medically significant. Decompensation is the failure of a bodily function. If a, if a doctor were to say that CG's heart was decompensating, it would mean his heart was not adequately circulating blood through his veins. In the context of an individual with psychosis and schizoaffective disorder, a finding that the individual was decompensating is a finding that the tools that CG's mind has for tethering him to reality had failed. Is any of what you just told me in the record in this case anywhere? Uh, there is the finding um, that CG. I mean, you just gave me, you just told me a, a fair amount about what decompensation meant. Is that in the record? Your Honor, I believe that Dr. Schiff testifies that um, he feared decompens CG's decompensation. I mean, I don't think you would question that there's evidence that there was decompensation, but you've given me a, a discussion of what decompensation is, and that's what I was trying to find out is whether that's in the record or not. Your Honor, I do not believe that decompensation is defined okay. by Dr. Schiff in okay, testimony in the record. Just a quick follow-up on that. In the findings that are recited by the trial court at the hearing, um, she refers to um, his ACT team um, initially had him committed. They were unable to see to his needs through visit decompensation. Does the record reflect what that means? Your Honor, I, it is not entirely clear to me what visit decompensation meant in that context. Um, but again- it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's referring to physical decompensation of the kind you were describing though, does it? Your Honor, I do not mean to assert that they were describing physical decompensation. I believe that they were describing psychiatric decompensation. But there is also Court of Appeals precedent holding that psychiatric decompensation uh, can satisfy the serious physical debilitation prong. Uh, that's in Zollenkoffer, which we cite in our brief. There is an unreported case from 2020 that we did not cite in our brief, but I'm happy to provide that citation if the court would like it. Uh, there's a third reason why the district court's finding about CG's assertive community treatment team is so important, and that's because an assertive community treatment team is one of, if not the most, substantial mental health treatment interventions short of commitment to an inpatient facility. These teams are used only to treat individuals with severe mental illnesses. The individuals they treat are at a heightened risk of, quote, and this is from the DHHS definition of an assertive community care team that we cite at page six of our brief in footnote one, uh, a heightened risk of hospitalization, homelessness, substance use, and victimization. And an assertive community treatment team is, quote, the first line and generally sole provider of all of the services that the respondent needs. Members of these teams are trained to work with individuals who may passively or actively resist services. So for an assertive community treatment team, to conclude that CG's condition was so severe that they were not able to care for him indicates that CG's condition was seriously endangering to him. Moving on to the next finding that I think goes to CG's uh, risk of serious physical debilitation without treatment, 
the district court found that CG, quote, has disturbing thoughts which cause deterioration and leave him unable to perceive danger to himself, resulting in his being assaulted. So it is not the case that that finding is necessarily a finding that CG had been assaulted once in the past. It is actually a finding that CG's uh, symptoms of his mental illness pose a risk of him being assaulted in the future because he is unable to perceive danger. Is, again, is that the words you just said, are they in the order? The, the words in the order are Let me, let's, let me let's, the issues is what's in the order. I mean, let, let's, can we stick with that at least for, to help me sort of understand what you're arguing? Yes, Your Honor. So again, the quote from the order uh, is, obviously CG has, quote, disturbing thoughts which caused deterioration and leave him unable to perceive danger to himself, resulting in his being assaulted. Okay, thank you. That is the, the finding. All right, thank you. Um, the, the next finding that I would like to speak about is that uh, CG has, quote, active psychosis. Um, and I have to slightly amend it to get the, the structure right, but that the active psychosis causes CG to be a danger to himself. This is another forward-looking finding about CG's dangerousness. Uh, it shows that CG's psychosis, which the district court had found, leaves him at risk of being assaulted, leaves him unable to perceive danger to himself, would continue in the future. CG argues that this finding is conclusory, but in doing so, they mischaracterize the finding. Uh, they cut off the part about CG's active psychosis being what makes him a danger to himself. Um, the next finding I'd like to discuss is the district court's finding that CG, quote, suffers from hallucinations, disorganized thoughts, and is non-compliant with his medication when he's not at the hospital, end quote. Again, I think this finding connects some of the district court's other findings about how CG's symptoms uh, could pose a danger to himself to the future by showing that CG is not going to take medication to treat those symptoms. And the last finding I'd like to discuss is the district court's finding that CG, quote, lives with a person who has anger issues. Once again, this is a finding that in the future, absent treatment, CG is going to endanger himself, namely. How, how, does, how does living with somebody that might assault you tie to the psychiatric condition from which the respondent suffers? Your Honor, I believe it would be that the psychiatric conditions leave CG unable to perceive danger to himself. And when you combine that and the hallucinations and disturbing thoughts uh, with a finding that he is going to live with someone who also has volatile behavior, that taken together, those show a risk of physical harm to CG. Uh, Your Honors, I, I would also like to talk uh, about the standard of review and what the statute requires, though I'm happy to continue answering questions about the findings. 
One last note I would make about the findings is, although I recognize that Court of Appeals decisions are not binding on this court, there is a Court of Appeals decision that I believe very closely resembles the findings in this case, where the Court of Appeals affirmed the district court's decision. That case is in Remore, uh, which we discuss at length in our brief. I'll just briefly run through some of the findings and more that are similar here. And counsel, before you begin that uh, discourse, uh, I would like to call your attention to one of your uh, points about a finding of fact uh, about the ACT team. It says his ACC, ACT team initially had him committed. I read that to mean that initially, before now, how do you see that as forward-looking since that was very serious when he was first committed, but now at this stage, it's not stating what the situation is now with respect to this ACT team, and, and could you help me understand that? Yes, Your Honor, I'd have two responses. So first is that CG, other recorded facts show, was not taking the steps necessary to treat the symptoms that led the ACT team to bring him there in the first place. And those are recorded findings. That's the finding that he is non-compliant with his medication when he is not in the hospital. Uh, the second point I would make, Your Honor, and this is not one of the recorded findings. This is simply evidence in the record. Uh, there is evidence in the record where Dr. Schiff testifies that while they're treating CG, their goal is to return him to his baseline and that they consulted the ACT team about what that baseline was and whether CG was back there. Um, I believe that that is at uh, page 10 of the transcript, uh, Dr. Schiff's testimony. Uh, in Remore, very similar to this case, uh, the respondents have uh, the same conditions, that's schizoaffective disorder. They have many of the same symptoms, hallucinations, psychosis. Uh, there was also uh, findings about decompensation and deteriorating in Inri Moore, uh, specifically, uh, the district court found that the respondent was, quote, at a high risk of decompensation if released without medication. And there was a finding in Inri Moore that the respondent was not going to take his medicine if he was uh, not in treatment. So the district court found that, quote, the respondent has a history of non-compliance with medication outside of the hospital. Those findings very similar to the findings on which the district court based its uh, ultimate finding that CG poses a danger to himself. Turning to the uh, standard of review, uh, we've already discussed what this court must do. It must determine whether the district court's ultimate findings are supported by the district court's recorded facts and whether the district court's recorded facts are supported by competent evidence in the record. But I would like to note that appellate courts review district courts' findings with great deference. As this court explained recently in State v. Fuller, a finding of future dangerousness should be affirmed so long as it is supported by the district court's evidentiary facts, even if the evidentiary facts could also support a different ultimate finding. Appellate courts do not reconsider whether the evidence of a respondent's mental illness and dangerousness was clear, cogent, and convincing. And appellate courts do not reweigh the evidence presented to the district court. Um, I think the not reweighing the evidence point is highly salient here. Again, to take one of the district court's recorded facts, it 
found that CG's uh, active psychosis made him a danger to himself. It also found that CG's symptoms made him unable to perceive danger and resulted in him being assaulted. If there is competent evidence in the record supporting those, and I believe there are, it is not an appellate court's role to reweigh that evidence. So, so is your argument that we don't reweigh the, evidence, the uh, evidentiary findings that the trial court made, or is your argument given that the, essentially given that the trial court found that the definition of dangerous to oneself was satisfied if there's evidence to support it, it doesn't matter whether the trial court's evidentiary findings support that determination? No, Your Honor. I do okay. not intend to argue so, that. What, what, all right. I, I, tell me again what you meant by what you just said and so that I'll get it correctly in the way you meant it rather than misunderstand you. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes. The recorded facts that the trial court makes must support its ultimate finding that CG poses a danger to himself. Where the not reweighing the evidence is relevant is that if there is any competent evidence in the record that supports those ultimate findings, uh, this court should defer to those recorded facts. There's good reason. Oh, I well, have a follow-up on that. I'm, I'm not hearing you say that there's anything beyond um, him being a danger to himself that would satisfy the requirements of the second prong of reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation in the near future um, that with behavior that's grossly irrational, um, the, the sort of language that's in the statute. Are you saying that that finding is taken care of by the danger to himself that you've already discussed? Your Honor, I am only arguing that the recorded facts, the five that I specified, uh, reveal that CG faced a reasonable probability of suffering serious physical debilitation in the near future. And that finding uh, is part of the dangerousness to self finding. Um, the other part is the first prong, which as I uh, said at the beginning, I do not understand respondents to be challenging, though if they were to challenge it, I would uh, contend that. So, so, so is your argument that if the respondent, the severity of the Respondent's mental condition is sufficient. A finding of a risk of physical debility is permissible. Yes, Your Honor. If uh, the individual's mental illness is so severe that it places him at a risk of serious physical debilitation in the near future, the statute uh, would be satisfied. Obviously, that is a very high bar to meet. But as I explained earlier, uh, the Court of Appeals has found that a finding of psychiatric decompensation satisfies a finding of serious risk of physical debilitation in the near future. And, and that makes sense. Uh, to go back to my example about uh, heart decompensation, if I have a heart defect, there might be limits on what I can do. Maybe I'm not allowed to participate in competitive, uh, you know, professional sports. Um, but I can still go about my normal life. If my heart is decompensating, if it's not pumping blood through my veins, I cannot survive without treatment. I will face a serious risk of physical debilitation without treatment. 
I do not mean to suggest that merely a finding of mental illness will suffice. Obviously, the statute requires a risk of serious physical debilitation in the near future, but the symptoms of one's mental illness, especially if there are findings that the individual is not going to treat those symptoms unless they are committed, can rise to the level of serious physical debilitation in the near future. I'd like to return to uh, the deference point for one uh, last point, and that is why deference here is so important. The district court's findings, the recorded facts at least, are informed by its observations of the respondent's demeanor in the same way that jury's credibility decisions or a judge conducting a bench trial's uh, findings of fact are influenced by uh, the judge's observation of the demeanor of the witnesses. We simply cannot, on appeal, uh, see that same demeanor evidence in the way that a trial court could. This case is a good example of that. Um, during his testimony, CG appeared to have a, a psychotic episode or at least a hallucination um, while he was on the stand. If you look at pages 17 and 18 of the transcript, CG is asked if he would like to be released from Williams Ward and he uh, goes on a tangent about reminding the nurse, who he says resembles another woman from his past, about taking her water pills. When his counsel asked if he is okay, CG's answer was, at least according to the transcript, uh, indiscernible. Uh, Your Honors, there were some questions about the uh, prima facie inference in um, my colleague's presentation. I'd like to briefly address the prima facie inference. Uh, the state's position is that the court does not need to rely on that inference to affirm CG's commitment, but the prima facie inference can further support CG's commitment. Uh, as we explained in our brief, we believe that the prima facie inference in the second prong of the dangerousness to self-definition can support a finding that there is a reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation in the near future when combined with other recorded facts. In this case, that would work as follows. Uh, CG engaged in grossly inappropriate behavior. Again, I would point the court to the transcript of CG's testimony. Um, I, I already talked about uh, his hallucinations. He also testified to seeing black and white dots that he perceived to be angels, um, the white dots, the black dots, perhaps negativity. Uh, that conduct permits an inference that CG is unable to care for himself. When you combine an inability to care with, for yourself with findings that your highly trained assertive community care team also cannot treat you, that you are not going to uh, take the medications to treat yourself, and that your symptoms uh, leave you unable to perceive danger and may result in you being assaulted, the inference further supports a finding that CG was likely to suffer serious physical debilitation in the near future. Uh, CG's arguments about the prima facie inference ignore the statute's text and structure. So at first, CG argues that the inference does the same work as the first prong of the dangerousness to self-definition. That is not correct. The first prong is very broad. We shorthand it as an inability to provide for one's needs um, finding, but actually it can be satisfied merely by showing that the individual lacks self-control, discretion, and judgment 
in the conduct of his individual responsibilities and social relations. That is not the same as a finding that the individual cannot care for himself at all. Similarly, the first prong can be satisfied by showing that the individual cannot satisfy just one of his needs. It's disjunctive. Nourishment, personal or medical care, shelter, or safety. The prima facie inference is a finding that you cannot care for any of your needs. And second, CG cannot explain why the General Assembly placed that inference in the second prong if it actually bears on the first prong. The General Assembly knows how to write statutes. If it intended for the inference to apply to the first prong, it would have placed it there. So again, your honors, I don't think the court needs to address the prima facie inference to affirm, but if the court does decide to address it, it should reject CG's atextual and anti-structural interpretation. And your honors, I'd like to close by talking about treatment. CG's brief at times uh, describes the involuntary commitment process as punishment. I recognize that commitment implicates an important liberty interest. No one disputes that. But calling it punishment is a mischaracterization. The statute is clear that the purpose of involuntary commitment to an inpatient mental health treatment facility is treatment to remove the risk of harm to the respondent or others. And the record contains evidence about the treatment CG was receiving. Dr. Schiff testified that doctors had changed CG's medication to a previously effective regimen of medications that included antipsychotics and mood stabilizers. He further testified that he had future plans for CG's treatment if he were committed that included, quote, reinitiating a long-acting injectable that CG was previously stabilized on. And as I discussed when just explaining the assertive community treatment team, Dr. Schiff had a baseline. Um, he had spoken to the assertive community treatment team. He had also spoken to another doctor on the unit who had previously seen CG. And he said that his goal was to return CG to the baseline so that his assertive community treatment team could continue caring for him. And one final point about treatment, Your Honor, is although CG was committed for up to 30 days, it is up to 30 days. There is no requirement that his commitment last that long. In fact, the statute explicitly requires that if an attending physician were to determine that CG no longer met the definition of dangerousness to self or no longer had a mental illness, he would be released. And again, the record reveals that both Dr. Schiff and the district court anticipated and even hoped for the possibility that CG's treatment would be so successful that he could be released before the full 30 days of commitment. Unless there are any questions, Your Honor, I would ask that the district court's evidence-backed, recorded facts, because the district court's evidence-backed, recorded facts, support its ultimate conclusion that CG posed a danger to himself absent treatment, and because CG concedes that he has a mental illness and he concedes the first prong of the dangerousness to self-definition, that this court affirm the Court of Appeals decision uh, affirming CG's commitment for up to 30 days. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. <laughs> Rebuttal. 
just briefly. So an involuntary commitment is a punishment if a person doesn't meet the statutory criteria. And we don't commit people to help titrate their medications. We only commit people if they're at risk of serious physical debilitation. That's it. And looking at the trial court's order, none of the findings established that risk of serious physical debilitation. It was devoid of anything discussing that. The, the, the findings that the trial court did make that the state pointed to was one, CG was mentally ill. Okay, fine. That speaks to the mental illness. It has nothing to do with dangerousness. Uh, second, mental, mental illness with dangerousness. That's not enough under the statute. Um, the idea of his ACT team saying he was decompensating and that's why they brought him in. Again, we don't know what the ACT team was seeing on the ground. No one testified. There was some idea that they had brought him in, but we don't know what was really going on in CG's house when he was brought in. And Justice Barringer, you asked a question about um, whether what they were, what Dr. Schiff was saying about the ACT team was that past facing. My answer is yes. And if somebody is talking only about what was going on prior to the hearing and what was going up when they were first in there in that you know, couple day hold, that doesn't speak to future dangerousness. And so if a person was dangerous but is no longer dangerous, the, the remedy is to release the person right away, not to commit them. Um, you know, generally when we get up here on my side of the aisle, you know, we're just talking about our clients. We're just talking about what happened below. But understanding what happened to CG, I think you have to understand the context of what's going on in our state with regard to involuntary commitments and mental health treatment. And the amicus brief brilliantly lays it out um, that IVC has now become a tool of convenience and IVCs are skyrocketing. Um, I think you also have to consider this case in context with the five other cases that are up here today. Um, this, this idea that all these people need to be involuntarily committed just because they have a mental illness, this is a manufactured crisis. The increased number of IVCs can't be explained by need, but what they can be explained by is a loosening of the standards to determine who is getting committed. And we, have, we simply have to do a better job. And that means ensuring that there's a procedural process in place so that a trial court is not in the dual position of making the state's case for it and deciding whether to commit somebody. And it, it has to be done by ensuring that the trial courts and the Court of Appeals are engaging in meaningful review to determine whether somebody actually meets that second prong of the statute, which requires a risk of serious physical debilitation. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both. Court. All rise.